Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, November 19th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a brief history of takeout and delivery, plus a What We Do in the Shadows actor's previous career as an award-winning yo-yoer, and the abomination that is Ranch Nog. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. While delivery dining is undergoing some massive changes right now, started by the growth of apps like Grubhub and Uber Eats and bolstered by shifts caused by the pandemic, we all know that delivery is nothing new. Getting food delivered or picking it up to take home is a pretty old concept, but turns out it might be much older than you think. In an excerpt from his new book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After, food reporter Corey Mintz writes that we can trace takeout dining at least as far back as ancient Rome and their Thermopylae. A thermopylium literally meant a place where something hot is sold, and it was kind of a long counter that could keep food warm and sell it quickly and ready-made to customers. Imagine a buffet-style bar, but outside and on its own. As Mintz explains, quote, Back then, not everyone had a kitchen in their home. At Thermopylia, Romans could grab a quick bite of meat and cheese, spiced wine, lentils, fish, or nuts with a dash of garum, the liquid extract of fermented fish similar to the fish sauce essential to Southeast Asian cooking, a condiment as ubiquitous to the ancient Roman as ketchup is to the modern American. These takeout spots weren't rare. In the ruins of Pompeii, buried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, more than 80 Thermopylium counters have been discovered. Though the ancient Romans may not have had to pick up the ancient kids from ancient soccer practice, they were busy enough to have created fast food and takeout. End quote. The Romans weren't the only ones doing this, of course. The Aztecs sold food like tamales in open air markets, and I'm pretty sure plenty of other cultures did the same, we just have yet to uncover archaeological evidence of it. And speaking of archaeological evidence, as far as we know, it would take many centuries before grab-and-go food evolved into delivery. Mintz notes that delivery food service is often credited to King Umberto and Queen Margarita of Italy in the late 19th century, but that we have no evidence of this, so it's probably just a legend. What we do have evidence for is a lunch delivery service started by Mahadeo Havachi Bakic in Mumbai around that same time. Bakic carried tiffins, cylindrical steel lunch boxes, between offices, homes, and restaurants, formalizing what's known as the Dabawala system. Carryout featured throughout U.S. history as well, from the wealthy sending their servants to pick up food at restaurants in the colonial era, to black women selling food at train stations shortly after the Civil War, to black people writ large in the Jim Crow South essentially being forced to order carryout since they couldn't actually sit in segregated restaurants. Other than that, takeout was mostly thought of as something for train stations and roadhouses. And as I've mentioned before when discussing the history of Chinese food in America, takeout and delivery really took off in the States after World War II, when droves of mostly white people moved to the suburbs and car sales quadrupled. Mintz notes that pizza became extremely popular thanks to returning American GIs who served in Italy having developed a taste for it. And also that McDonald's, which opened its doors during the war, didn't actually have dine-in seating for its first 20 years. 
But pizza has turned out to really be the dominator of delivery culture in the U.S. For one, it holds up better physically than burgers or other foods when it's delivered, and it's a highly adaptable and customizable dish. Prior to the explosion of delivery apps, pizza was sometimes one of only a handful of options or the only option for food you could get delivered to your house in many towns across the country. It has also always been at the forefront of digital innovation. I think I've shared this fact before, but it always blows my mind. The very first physical product sold online in 1994 was for a large pepperoni pizza with mushrooms from Pizza Hut on their PizzaNet site. Papa John's, stars of the last segment of yesterday's show, got into the online ordering game all the way back in 2001. Domino's, who innovated with their pizza tracker, didn't go online until 2010, but that was still well ahead of many other smaller restaurants who were still mostly accessible only via phone after you located their to-go menu in your junk drawer. And then came the delivery apps. Mintz's book is largely about those apps, the myriad ways they've transformed the restaurant industry, and the harm they've done. Mintz describes the apps as, quote, predatory enterprises that have figured out how to use technology to get between restaurants and their customers and then sell the customers back for a cut of the action. End quote. He mentions how all of these VC-backed companies think of themselves as tech companies, not taxi or restaurant businesses, how all of their couriers are independent contractors so the companies can skirt certain labor laws, and the high commissions that no restaurant likes but most feel they have to say yes to or else lose out on business. These are all points that people writ large have increasingly been made aware of throughout the pandemic, and it leaves us in a curious place with regards to the future of takeout and delivery. Will these delivery apps succeed? Will they treat their contractors and restaurant partners better? Or will they be replaced by something else? Currently, Mince notes, this mechanism of delivery that didn't even exist a decade ago takes up almost 11% of the restaurant market, so it's tough to predict where we'll go from here. You know, we probably wouldn't have imagined this is what the state of takeout would look like after that first internet pizza order in 1994. But in other ways, stepping even further back, the state of food we don't cook ourselves really doesn't look too different from the Thermopylae of ancient Rome. Listen, I'm from the South. I get how much people love ranch. I used to love it too before my body started revolting anytime I put dairy into it. And you all know I love a good wacky brand integration, but this one might just be taking it too far. Hidden Valley Ranch, the salad dressing company responsible for inventing ranch, is now selling a ranch nog kit, which includes everything you need to make a ranch-based eggnog. Food & Wine notes that it was created in partnership with mixologists Whiskey and Rosemary, and in addition to two packets of Hidden Valley Original Ranch salad dressing and seasoning mix, the kit also comes with the Ranch Nog recipe, a stainless steel jigger, and two admittedly very nice-looking glass Irish coffee mugs that are custom-etched with the Ranch Nog branding. Hidden Valley Ranch describes it as, quote, marrying the creamy, slightly sweet elements of eggnog with the savory, cool, and herby flavors of ranch, end quote. And since you have to pay for the recipe card, they're not telling us what exactly you add to the seasoning packets to create the ranch nog, but the company notes that it will, quote, delight superfans and surprise skeptics with how good it actually is, 
end quote. The kit is $50 and only available while supplies last, but if you miss out, their online shop has a shockingly diverse array of items, including a ranch bottle printed $300 suitcase, a tie-dye lounge set, holiday PJs for the whole family, a yoga lover's kit, and so much more. For Halloween, they even released little individual ranch packets that they encouraged people to hand out to trick-or-treaters, which sounds ridiculous, but I can guarantee that some kids in the South and Midwest would have gotten a huge kick out of that. In any case, Hidden Valley Ranch has apparently been having a ton of fun getting weird with their merch for a while now, and I'm glad I'm finally clued into it, even if there is no way I am trying any of their ranch nog. You may know Mark Brooks from his current role as energy vampire Colin Robinson on What We Do in the Shadows, or perhaps some of his previous roles as Nate the warehouse worker on The Office and Daniel in Better Call Saul. But before all of that, the comedian was taking the Midwestern morning news circuit by storm as Kenny K. Strass Strasser, an award-winning yo-yoist on a mission to teach kids about environmentalism through the power of the yo-yo. Anyone else who grew up in the 90s will remember that brief period right before Pokemon cards got big when everyone was super into yo-yos, to the point that our schools used to have yo-yo groups come into assemblies and teach us new tricks. Commercials were dominated by Duncan and Yomega. Everyone was trying to learn how to walk the dog and do the around the world. So it might mildly blow your mind to learn that Mark Prooks, the man behind the indefatigable Colin Robinson, was one of those yo-yo masters traveling around to schools and teaching us kids cool tricks. Except that, well, he wasn't. He could barely do a single yo-yo trick, but somehow still managed to prank no less than five local TV news stations into having him on to share all about his company, ZimZam Yo-Yo, and their Keeping It Green tour to promote their environmentally friendly yo-yos. In a series of clips that you can watch back on YouTube, you can see the utterly painful moments of Prooks in character as K-Strass with a bright yellow hat and green shorts, fumbling over his messaging lines, talking way too much about his personal life, and completely failing to execute a single yo-yo trick. In one, he keeps his cell phone on him and actually answers a call from his dad in the middle of the interview. Even knowing what he's up to, it's super uncomfortable to watch, as the anchors, who at the time bought it hook, line, and sinker, struggle to figure out how to respond to him or cover for some of his more outrageous lines, like talking about how yo-yoing saved him from a life of drugs and gambling, and arguing for spanking kids despite the trauma he still carries from his dad beating him. Here's a clip from one of his interviews. Just tell us a little bit about how you got started to be a yo-yo master. Uh, honestly, it, I am just a 35-year-old kid at heart, you know, uh, twice divorced. I have no kids. I don't have a girlfriend, don't want one. Um, you know, it takes a lot of practice. My parents uh, live in Denver. They just got divorced. Uh, my, my dad is now in Oshkosh. And um, honestly, I'm just going all around. I uh, have a brother in Portland who I don't get get along with very well because of his wife. And I'm not going to go. My dad. Hi. We're uh, dealing with some issues this morning, yep. so we will uh, 
actually just head that back to Jeff and Bowen will be joining you a bit more with some of these yo-yo tricks coming up in, in just a bit. Yeah, we should probably tell you that Kenny is dealing with some personal issues this morning, so he yeah. had to have that uh, cell phone on. Anybody else gets yelled at for having the cell phone in the studio, but Kenny yeah. had to have his on for some personal reasons this we'll morning. We'll get back to him if we can. In a 2011 interview with Dave Holmes on his old YouTube show, A Drink with Dave, Proksh explains that it began as an idea with his buddy Joe Pickett, co-founder of the Found Footage Festival, which oddly enough is a really cool organization that I have long been a fan of, so that was a cool little finding for me. But anyways, at some Found Footage Festival events back in the early 2000s, Proksh would appear as this K-Strass character he had invented. Then eventually Pickett had the idea to get him on some morning news shows in character to kind of create their own found footage. And it turned out to be remarkably easy. They registered a domain name for the fake company ZimZam, printed out a t-shirt for Proch to wear, and fabricated a slew of awards that Kay Strauss had won, which a fake booking rep called Joe Gerke would email in a pitch to local TV stations. And since morning news shows are always looking for ways to fill the time on air, that was really all it took. But in addition to missing the latest yo-yo craze by about a decade, Proksh and the Found Footage Festival guys ran their experiment a bit too late in terms of the evolution of the internet as well. Their intention had always been to do about 12 of the appearances with a running story arc uniting them and then put them all up online in a Found Footage Festival project. They even filmed some of them out of order based on how they thought different plots they had come up with would resonate with different anchors. But the problem was, this was 2009 and 2010. YouTube was alive and well, and also obsessed with fail videos. So people who had seen the appearances, especially one where Prooks fell over while spinning four yo-yos above his head, started uploading the clips online themselves, and Prooks was basically busted. One intrepid reporter, Michael Lauber at WSAW, figured out that Prooks was full of it and warned all of the other stations in the area not to book him. Lauber wrote a whole piece about the conspiracy, which I've been unable to dig up, but there are a few other articles still online and even some TV spots from the time revealing that K-Strass was fake, but none of them were yet able to figure out exactly who was behind it. Joke is on them, however, because K-Strauss going moderately viral ended up leading to Proksh's role on The Office. The writers saw the videos one day on their lunch break, and even though Proksh was trying to keep a low profile so people wouldn't find out K-Strauss was fake, turns out they had a mutual friend who was able to set up a meeting, and the rest is history. Proksh told Holmes back in 2011 that it's really the fact that someone put his clips on YouTube that his acting career continued at all. I wasn't expecting this to turn into one of those mainstream successes who originally got their start on YouTube stories, but it kind of was, at least as Prooks tells it. And as a fan of his energy vampire character on What We Do in the Shadows, I gotta say my favorite part of all these old K-Strass clips is how they really do suck the energy from you. They're uncomfortable to watch and really funny, but also so slow. Like, if you told me this whole thing was a long con for his current cable TV character, I would honestly believe you. So this is kind of fun. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris was 
acting president for a little over an hour this morning as President Joe Biden underwent a routine physical, which in part required him to go under anesthesia. And while it doesn't actually count as Harris having briefly become our first woman president, it is still cool that, as Debbie Walsh, the director of the Center for American Women in Politics, put it to Reuters, quote, for the first time, a woman is the number one person in the line of succession, end quote. And that means when President Biden is out of commission, even just briefly, the power falls to Vice President Harris. And the transfer of power thing is just as routine as the colonoscopies that usually cause it. Back in 2002 and 2007, President George W. Bush formally transferred presidential power to Vice President Dick Cheney when he was under anesthesia for the same procedure as President Biden today. By around noon Eastern, the president was back in action, and it doesn't seem like there were any, you know, alien invasions or other dire emergencies that Vice President Harris had to handle while he was out. But that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.